Malchus, children at this time. Go to the back for their lesson there, Children's Church. Grateful for our children. That's a blessing. Grateful they've got some place to go during the morning service. Amen. Luke chapter 15 is where I ask you to turn today. Luke chapter 15. That great theologian George Burns said, Happiness is having a large, loving, caring family, close-knit family in another city. That's about the truth, isn't it? The holidays are the time when the families get together and they figure out why they don't get together more often. And it reminds us uh, so that families, of course, uh, you've heard before, like fudge. They're mostly sweet, but there's some nuts in there. And if you think, my family doesn't have any nuts, you're the nut, okay? Uh, the rest of them would say that. But we get together anyway, regardless of these things. We, we gather together during these times, these special uh, celebrations. And sometimes it brings a little drama to the scene. And today's text, we're going to see some of that drama. We see a family gathering that bring that involves some deep-seated resentments. And sometimes, as it is in this story, there is a little bit of that drama that comes to the surface. Maybe you've experienced that even in your family. Regardless, though, I love the Thanksgiving holiday. It's one of my favorite uh, holidays because, well, it involves food. Amen? That's a blessing. And uh, good food for that. But we have so much to be thankful for. It's a time that we count our blessings instead of our crosses. We count our gains instead of our losses. We count our joys instead of our woes. We count our friends instead of our foes. We count our smiles instead of our tears. We count our courage instead of our fears. It's a time we focus on being grateful and thankful for the things that we have. You know, we're told in the Bible that we are to be thankful. It's a command. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18 uh, the Bible says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ, uh, God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In 1860, the steamship uh, Lady Elgin wrecked in a violent storm in Lake Michigan. A young man swam out to survivors that were trying to uh, survive the waves, and it was uh, pounding waves in a storm. And Edward Spencer, a young college student, swam out again and again. Eventually, he saved 17 people. His heroic act made headlines all over the world, as you can imagine. Yet, though he risked his life and the, what he went through that night affected his physical health for the rest of his days. Spencer later told a reporter that not a single one of those people that he saved ever returned to express gratitude. Isn't that something? Christians have every reason to be a grateful people, yet often we are not. All too often we take our blessings for granted. One of the reasons is that we get used to them. We soon start to expect those blessings and, yes, even demand them. A man who lives on the coast of Florida just a few miles from the Kennedy Space Center was asked by his friend, or, or we were talking, and he said it must be amazing to see the space launches go up. And uh, it was actually within view of his house. And this man said, you know, I don't even step outside to watch him anymore. I've seen him so often, it doesn't really mean anything. When we see the same blessings every day, eventually we start to notice them. 
or we stop noticing them, I should say. Think about this. If the stars only came out once every hundred years, every one of us would be up gazing and taking pictures. We would plan around it. Nothing would stop us from going out at that time and seeing the stars that only come by every so often, but they're there almost every night, and we don't even notice them anymore. When we stop noticing, we quit appreciating. When we quit appreciating, we stop thinking. When we stop thinking, we begin complaining. And this is the, the, the process that happens in so many of our lives. I thought it would be appropriate this morning to give a little history behind the Thanksgiving holiday. I want to read to you the proclamation made by Governor Bradford in 1623, uh, three years after the pilgrims settled. He was a boyhood friend of Brother West. Uh, let's read his proclamation. To all ye pilgrims, insomuch as the great father has given us this year an abundant harvest of Indian corn, wheat, peas, squashes, and garden vegetables, and has made the forest to abound with game and the sea with fish and clams, and insomuch as he has protected us from the raids of the savages, has spared us from pestilence and disease, has granted us the freedom to worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience, now I, your magistrate, do proclaim that all pilgrims with your wives and your little ones do gather at the meeting house on the hill between the hours of 9 and 12 on the day time on, no, on Thursday, November the 29th, the year of our, our Lord 1623, there to listen to your pastor and render thanksgiving to the Almighty God for all his blessings. That was the proclamation for the very first Thanksgiving day. Now, it's, this is important because that is not really taught in our schools, in our society today, but I think it's important to teach our children the Christian heritage that we have and the beginnings of our nation. This is the humanist, uh, a humanist wrote this uh, statement, there are so few secular holidays, let's give thanks for this one. While most people might say they're thanking God, this holiday sprang from thanks to the harvest, regardless of what you credit that for, farmers or meteorologists. The statement I just read by Mr. Bradbury didn't thank meteorologists for it. But anyway, I, I go on. Thanksgiving is more of a national observance than any kind of religious one. Humanists can use the occasion to recognize things we are thankful for without designating it to God by directing our gratitude towards friends and family, nature, science, life, the universe. So enjoy the holiday in an unholy way. I choose to thank the one from whom all blessings flow, from the Father of lights whose all good things come from above, the Bible says. In our text that we're about to read, Jesus communicates several lessons. It's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible, well-known, the prodigal son. It shows us what God is really like in this story as represented by the Father. He's not some impersonal tyrant who's too busy to care about you. He is a loving Heavenly Father who has numbered the hairs on your head and cares enough about you that even when we sin, even when we fail, when we repent of that sin and that failure, He will receive us back with open arms. But today I want to focus on the older brother in this story. From him we learn another important lesson. If you'll read along with me, Luke chapter 15, starting at verse number 11. Certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. 
Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. When he had spent all, there arose a famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have fain filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And then he came to himself and said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against thee, and against thy God, uh, against heaven and before thee, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He rose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said unto his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and let us be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost. And he is found, and they began to be merry. Now the elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house and heard the music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. Now he was angry. Now stop and think about that for just a moment. Someone came home. Someone got right with God. Somebody forsook their sin and came back to the Father. And this made him angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son is come, which has devoured thy living with harlots, Thou hast killed him for the fatted calf, has killed for him the fatted calf. He said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad for this. Thy brother was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. Father, I pray you to help us in these next few minutes as we look at this story and the attitudes surrounding it. May you help us learn to have a thankful spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about the empty chair at Thanksgiving. The empty chair at Thanksgiving. And to set the scene, a man had two sons, as we read here. And, and uh, one of the sons, as would be custom, he would uh, one day divide all of his living and all of his uh, uh, wealth and everything between these two sons. But it was long before he died that one of the sons, the younger one, came to him and demanded what was coming to him. And uh, the father gave him his inheritance early, and he took that inheritance, he went to Las Vegas, and he wasted it all in riotous living. As sin always did, it took him down a path further than he expected to go. And sin will always do that. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. And so he ended up broken, hungry, and miserable in the mud, and the mess of a hog pen. When he came to his senses, he confessed to God, he's like, you know, uh, I've really messed up here. And he realized his sin, and he confessed his sin, and he headed home to the Father. He wasn't sure that his dad would accept him, and he knew that he didn't deserve to be accepted, 
But he prepared the speech while he's on his way home. And by the way, every step that he took away from the Father, he had to take back to the Father. And as he's taking these steps back, he's rehearsing this speech. Father, I've sinned against thee and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he's practicing this speech as sometimes we do when we're heading to an important meeting or an important uh, time of our life. And so he gets to the Father, but before he can ever say anything, uh, he, his daddy was watching for him. And he saw him coming from a long ways off, the Bible says, and he ran out to meet him. Praise God as a picture of the Father. This is the only time in the Bible we see God running. And he ran to him, and he embraced his son. He showered him with kisses. And then the Bible says the father dressed him in a robe and he put, uh, they took the stinking hog infested clothes off of him and the tatters he was wearing and he put him in a robe and, and he also put the family ri- uh, ring on his finger. He put shoes on his feet and he killed the fatted calf. They had a wonderful celebration. And it would have been nice if the story ended there. It was like Thanksgiving. I mean, they had a celebration there. They were giving thanks to God instead of a turkey. They had veal, but that's the, a minor difference there. And they were having this wonderful time. But then we come to the primary purpose of the parable. And I'd like to remind you who the parable was, parable was given to and why. Look at verse 1 and 2. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So this is what prompted the parable. This Pharisaical, holier than thou, I'm not going to associate with you, look down my nose on you. That's what prompted the parable. In light of this fact, Jesus zeroing in on this Pharisaical attitude, the actual main character, if you will, was the older brother. Not so much the younger brother. I know we make him the main character as we tell the story because we love the idea of failure and redemption because we've all experienced failure and we've all needed redemption. But the older brother is the one that really is the one that's being talked about here. I heard a Sunday school teacher, about a Sunday school teacher who told the story of the prodigal son. She told about the prodigal returning and the father hugging the son and the father putting a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and a new robe on him. And she talked about the sorrow of the son and the forgiveness of the father. After the story uh, was over, as it often is the case with children's uh, time, uh, it was question time to see if they retained any of what she said. And so she said, boys and girls, who was not happy that the prodigal son returned home? And one little boy's hand shot up and he said, the fatted calf. Yeah, the fatted calf wasn't happy, but neither was his older brother, okay? He wasn't happy either. You see, on this great day of Thanksgiving, every chair around the table was filled but one. The chair that was beside the newly robed younger son, the prodigal, it belonged to the elder brother, the good boy, the one who obeyed the rules. He stayed clear of trouble. He was the responsible one. He may have heard the uh, the commotion, but he was unaware of what was going on inside at this point. He was in the field. After working hard all day, he arrives home and he hears music shaking the rafters of the house and he hears cheering and laughter and he knows something's going on. And so he called one of his servants, hey, what's going on? And his servant says, you didn't hear this yet. Your brother's home. 
He came home and your dad is rejoicing and we've had a party here rejoicing that he's coming home and he's left all that wicked lifestyle he did and, and your dad's kind of throwing him a meal. In fact, he's killed a fatted calf and we're feasting and rejoicing together. You would have thought that this would be followed by a happy reunion between two brothers who had not seen each other for a long time. As far as he figured it though, uh, this was not the case at all. He never wanted to lay eyes on his brother again. He, in fact, had thought his brother was as good as dead. And now as he thinks about it, the nerve to come back after all he had done. He basically, the prodigal, what he did was he told his father, I wish you were dead. I want what's coming to me as if you were dead. That was uh, culturally what he was saying to his father when he demanded his inheritance. To me, you're as good as dead, Pops. I want the money that's coming to me. He did that, he left, and then he wasted it all in riotous, wicked living. Now, uh, when he did that, who bore the brunt of the responsibility at home? Well, the older brother did. He had to shoulder the extra work. He had to be the responsible one. He had to take care of what the younger brother left. And uh, how could Dad even let this kid on the property again, much less throwing him a party. It was more than he could stand. So he started sulking. He'd been probably on the way home from the fields working all day. He'd probably famished and ready for supper, but now the appetite seems gone. He doesn't have that anymore. He's just bitter and angry. He was repulsed at the thought of this party for his wicked uh, brother. He refused to go in the house. No thanksgiving from him because this was an outrage. He wanted nothing to do with it. So I don't know, maybe a servant told him, or maybe he sees his older son out the window, but the father sees what's happening, and he steps out to urge his older son to join them at the table. And like a dam that bursts, the, this older son just lets everything out. Maybe he hadn't opened his heart to his father before, but now he just lets it all out. It's not fair. It's not fair. I've been working here. I've been doing everything right. And now he comes home and he gets a party. He comes, all comes the resentment to his dad for not giving him this type of treatment and the bitterness and the emotion just flows out of him. He's resentful of his brother's wild living. He's so frustrated that he'll again have to share the farm with his brother, this loser. The last thing in the world he wants to do is have a party. Now, let me ask you a question. How can a blessed person become extremely ungrateful? Would you agree we're blessed in America? We're blessed. We got a lot. I bet, I bet over half of you, not that we needed it this morning so much, but we will in a few weeks. I bet over half of you rode to church this morning or drove to church in a car that you can push a button and your seat warms up. Yeah, tell our ancestors that who came over on covered wagons and tell them we got hardships. We're blessed. We have a lot to be thankful for. We have things that... Uh, make our life easy, and we have wealth, we have all these things. So let me ask you, how can a blessed person become unthankful, ungrateful? Because if anybody should have been absolutely content, contented here, should have been the older brother. Uh, as we'll see, he was a very rich man, and he was the de facto head of this family now. Everything the father had belonged to him. The, the prodigal had taken his part. And by the way, the prodigal had taken his part at the time that he took it. If he'd have waited, it would have probably been ten times that amount as the wealth grew and the farm grew and all these things uh, accumulated. But he wanted what he wanted right then, and he took it, and that's all he would get. Everything now was the older brothers. Amazingly, though, 
possessions and position are not guarantees of a grateful heart. Not in your life either. You might have great possession, but that's no guarantee of a grateful heart. He who is thankful has enough. He who complains has too much. So as we look at the interchange here between this father and son, we discover a heart that is plagued with thanklessness. I want to look at a couple of points I think we can pull out that will help us understand why. Uh, first, he had an inflated sense of goodness. Look what the Bible says in verse 29. Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. This statement's very revealing. It shows why this brother had a lack of joy in his heart. He embellished his own goodness, and he exaggerated his brother's wickedness. Now, repentance and recovery meant nothing to this older son. He's not rejoicing in the fact that his younger son, got, uh, younger brother got right. And it, listen, it says something about you. If people can get right with God and it makes you angry, if people get saved and it upsets you, that would really say something about you, wouldn't it? He is too focused on his own achievements and he's without any affection for his erring brother. Five times in verse 29, he, he uses a personal pronoun uh, speaking to himself, and then he followed us up with basically, and this little brat of yours goes off and spends all your money on prostitutes. Now, we aren't told previously that the younger brother visited harlots. We're just going by what the older brother assumed he did, which isn't it illuminating? Sometimes we uh, accuse other people of doing what we would do if we were in their position. Might have been something going on in the heart of this older brother. But notice what he says. <laughs> this is a little humorous if you're a parent. Read this again. Read this through the eyes of being a parent. These many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Now come on now. I lived at home for 18 years. I was probably closest to the perfect son that you could get. Uh, if you don't believe me, ask my parents. You know what? Don't ask my parents. Just take my word for it, okay? I was, but even I couldn't say these, neither transgressed I at any time thy command. There is no way any young man growing up in a home never disobeys, never does anything wrong. But remember, he's comparing himself to his wicked brother, and so he's so proud of his goodness. And listen, friend, this is so important. You will always get a convoluted picture of yourself when you start comparing yourself to other people. You'll see yourself far better than you really are when you start comparing. That's why God says it's not wise for us to compare ourselves amongst ourselves. So this is what he's doing. This brother is so full of eye. He has serious eye problems. The letter I. He's so full of I that he couldn't see the repentance and the restoration of his brother. He's blinded to anything but his own feelings. He may not have wasted his life in riotous living, but he is full of bitterness. He is full of self-righteousness and jealousy and pride and anger and thanklessness in his life. This self-righteousness mirrored the self-righteous attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's why Jesus told this story. In this self-righteousness, we find ungratefulness. Because that's what we find in self-righteousness. Look what he says. Thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Boo-hoo is what you want to say as he's talking. This is a grown man. You never gave me a party. 
And look what he, the, the Bible says. Uh, this is, by the way, this whiner, whining attitude reeks of ungratefulness because ungratefulness uh, always gives birth naturally to what comes next, which is complaining. Because if we're ungrateful, then we begin to complain. And here he is complaining. Some people complain, love complaining almost as much as they love doing nothing about it. It's just fun to complain. I tell that to my wife once in a while, jokingly. I'll, I never complain, but sometimes I observe. You know what I'm saying? You just observe situations. It's not complaining if you're just observing a situation. You say, well, why don't you do such and such? Well, I don't want to do anything. I just want to complain about it. Sometimes we like doing that, right? But show me a person who's constantly complaining, and I'll show you an ungrateful person. But look at what the focus of the complaint here. This reflects an age-old problem. Now, listen to this again, because we do this. We focus on what we do not have instead of focusing on what we do have. And this will get you in trouble every single time. The older son had many blessings that the prodigal no longer had. Uh, the older son, uh, unlike that of the prodigals, his body was not scarred by sin and weakened by unholy living. His future was bright and promising, not like the prodigal sons who had no promise of the future. He's going to have to work like a, like a servant the rest of his life uh, to survive. All the remaining wealth of the father, it's all the, all the older brothers. Everything that is there is his. And yet he was jealous because his younger brother is having a party. Something wrong with him on the inside. And it's ungratefulness. He's, he's not grateful for what he has. He's, uh, we need to be thankful for what we have. Focusing on what you do not have is the core of ungratefulness instead of focusing on what we do have. We see this in the Garden of Eden. So, uh, man, Adam and Eve lived in a garden that God planted. Just let that sink in for a second. You have... The Bible says that he spoke the world in existence. He, in, in six days, he, he uh, created the world and he did it by the word of his mouth. He said it and it happened. God said, let there be light and there was light. And that's how he created. And then he fashioned man and uh, out of the ground. But the Bible says that God planted the garden. I think that's interesting. He spoke everything else in existence, but he personally planted the garden. Imagine living in a garden that God planted. And everything was there for them. This was before sin, so there was no weeds, weeds, no cockleburrs, no uh, bugs that ate all your fruit away. I was helping my dad uh, recently with a, an apple tree, and we were uh, talking about the fact that the the uh, the, the 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 worms, the eggs are laid when it's just a bud, and then the apple grows around and eat from the inside out. You didn't have any of this problem then. Everything was perfect. They had to access to all the fruits and the vegetables, everything that they wanted they could have. Of course, Brussels sprouts, persimmons, artichokes, they didn't come till after sin and after the fall, but, but everything good was there. And they had access to everything. But one tree, one tree in the middle of the garden, God said, that one, don't eat. Which tree do you think Satan brought to their attention? They might have had hundreds of trees they could have. But this is one tree they couldn't have. And Satan put all the focus on what they couldn't have. And there they are, gazing up in the tree, and she saw that it looked good for food, and she desired it, the Bible says, because that's how humans are. We look at what we can't have, and we want it. Try it out with your kids. Give them six toys. Put one over here when they're little. Tell them you can play with all these. Not this one, though. Which one do you think they're going to go for? They're going to go for that one. Because they're wicked. That's what kids are. Just like you and me. Or we want what we can't have. And so we're always going after it. 
We ignore all the privileges and focus on what we think we should have. Paul says in Hebrews 13, 5, Be content with such things as you have. Boy, listen, can I tell you, it's a lot better to want what you have than have what you want. Because what you want is not always good. We think we want something and it might not be good for us. But if you want everything you have, you're a blessed person. Try being grateful. It'll do so much for your contentment. There is no basis for the older son's complaint when he said, you never, thou never gave us me a kid. I love the dad's response. Son, the kids are all yours. Everything I have is yours. If you want a kid, go out and kill a kid. Not, not kid, kid. I'm talking goats, okay? Understand what this means. If you want to kill an animal, go out and kill it and eat it. Invite your friends over. The house is yours. The kids, they're yours. Who's, what's stopping you? And this is exactly what you did in the Christian life. He could have used whatever he wanted to celebrate whenever he wanted. But the complaint here is more of a condemnation to him than it is to the Father. Never let the things you want make you forget the things you have. Oh, that'll help us to have a grateful heart. The older son complained that he wasn't given enough favors. He accused the father of giving more honor to the prodigal than himself. It is the thankless person, proud person, who thinks he's never treated as well as he, deserve, as he deserves to be treated. You'll, as soon as you hear people talk about that, that they're not getting the treatment they deserve, you realize you're dealing with a thankless person because pride always overrates its own performance. That's why we complain about the lack of recognition. No one gave me a plaque. No one gave me recognition. But can I tell you, happy people don't go through life collecting recognition. Happy people give it away. And they're much happier for it. The elder son is like those who complain that God hasn't done anything for them. Can I remind you of a verse in Romans 5, 8? But God commendeth his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't care how broke you are. I don't care how poor you are. How hard life is. That's a pretty cool promise right there. That He provides eternal life in heaven for us through His Son. Something we cannot do. We can't do it with our good works. We can't earn it because we're sinners. We don't, we don't, uh, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's a condition. Nothing we can do about it. And yet He paid the price for it and uh, we ought to be grateful. So, number one, he had an inflated sense of his goodness. And then secondly, he was possessions blind. Verse 31, the dad reminds him, all that I have is thine. The older brother had everything. He was a rich man, but he still wanted more. And he had so much more than the prodigal. He had no business complaining. But the father, interesting, did the opposite of what ungratefulness does. The father focused on what he had instead of what he did not have. If God's people would just stop in their life and realize what we have in Jesus Christ, it would stop a lot of complaining problems we're having. Romans 8, 17, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's pretty big, isn't it? The creator of the universe, we're heirs of what he has. That's blessing. The younger son, uh, the younger brother out of poverty learned true riches. Can I ask you, what standard do you use to determine your blessings? I heard a story about a one morning after a terrible snowstorm. Susan is outside shoveling her driveway. And uh, she stopped to wave hello to her neighbor. And her neighbor is kind of curious that she's out there doing all the work of deep snow uh, from a storm and says, well, uh, why isn't your husband out here helping you? 
And she said, well, it's like this. We have three small kids in the house, so we, uh, one of us has to stay inside and take care of the kids, and the other has to come out and shovel all this snow. And so what we did is we just flipped a coin. And so the neighbor's like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. Uh, he's in there watching the kids, probably watching TV, and you're out here shoveling snow. She said, no, no, don't be sorry. I won the toss. And so uh, some things are better than watching three kids, okay? We need to use the right standard to measure our blessings. Recognize what God's done for us. He was possessions blind. Thirdly, he was, uh, he was relationally distant. He, look at verse 30. It says, this thy son. He's so mad, he can't even call it my brother. He calls it thy son to his dad. And then your son does this. He's not my son, he's your brother. But he couldn't call that. Now, the, in verse 31, the father had to remind him, son, thou art ever with me. Here's an interesting thing and a nugget I don't want you to miss. There's an entire shift of focus here in that verse. The son is saying, look at all I did. The father's saying, son, you've always been with me. What he, he's changing the dynamic here. He's saying, look, it's not your work that I cherish. It's you. I have you here. I don't care about the work. We can get servants to do the work. But you, you've been with me here. And just knowing you're here at home, that's what gives me my sense of enjoyment. Mr. and Miss Pharisee, can I tell you that God doesn't want your service as much as He wants you. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? She's slaving away in the kitchen while Martha's sitting there, ah, listening to Jesus talk, and nothing drives a busy woman crazier than somebody not doing something. Ever notice that? Uh, you know, if your wife's really busy in the house, don't sit in the easy chair because you're going to go down and go, Ah, and you got to get right back up and do something because you're going to be given a task. And so Martha's out there working and working and working, and here Mary is just sitting and listening to Jesus, and she comes in, arms on her hips, Jesus, tell her to come out and help me. And Jesus said, no, she's chosen the most important thing. And, and he, didn't, he didn't talk down to Martha. She was doing what was important too. Somebody had to make a meal, but Jesus is saying she realizes what the most important thing, relationships are more important than work. And some Christians work so hard They've substituted their worship with work. And busyness does not equal spirituality. Lots of religious people are busy, but they have no relationship with God. Relationship is what's important. And so he reminded him here, Son, you've always been with me. The presence of the Father is of great value. And that presence, if the older brother would have just woke up and recognized, that's what was important here. He still had his father and he never left his father. When the prodigal got away from the presence of the father, he got into a huge mess. He ended up in a hog pen, starving to death. But the elder son fared so much better. Why? Because he was in the presence of the father. We need to value God's presence above all earthly things. The psalmist said in Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy. We should stop complaining. We should be thankful. And next, the father says, all that I have is thine. Basically saying, son, if you wanted a feast, have a feast. It's yours. The animals are yours. The house is yours. Everything's yours. You can do what you want with it. And to Christians, I think that God has the same thing to say to us. You listen, you're an heir. Uh, there's... All that I have is available to you right now. That's why God says in James, you have not because you ask not. There's so much that we could enjoy in the Christian life that we don't have because we just don't take advantage of it. We're not asking for it. But we, He promises wisdom in James. He says, uh, ask for wisdom that God giveth liberally and abradeth not. I like that word abradeth. doesn't abrade. That's, that's, I'll give you a picture of what my son will ask me 
uh, for 10 bucks. I, I got to tell you this story. I'm sorry, Mike, I'm embarrassing you. We bought a, we bought a, a phone case for him. And uh, so it was, I, he would tell this story differently, but he's not up here, so I'm going to tell it. Isn't he? But um, so we bought a phone case, it was 10 bucks. And uh, I said, I'll cover it. He did something for me, so I'll cover it. So he got it, and then he returned it. And the way he sees it, he now has an extra $10 to put towards something else. But it was my $10 in the first place. So now I can get one that's worth $20 because I have a $10 credit, and you said you'd pay $10 for a phone case. And when, I, when, kids, when your kids over and over, you know, can I borrow money, can I borrow money, we'll, we'll upbraid. God never does. I just gave you some yesterday. He never does that. Keeps on giving it. Gives it liberally. And why don't we have wisdom? Maybe we're not asking for it. Maybe we're not seeking it out, like God tells us to do. And so, I like that idea, all that I have is thine. Sadly, so many Christians think they have to earn these blessings, but it's all part of God's grace. We have riches we cannot imagine. How can we be ungrateful? And I close with this, the need to rejoice. Look at verse number 32. Uh, Let me read it, verse 32. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. This, uh, he calls the prodigal thy brother. I like that, because the brother could just called him thy son. Prior to this message, I missed what the father was saying here in verse 32, but if you study the original language, it shines a little more light on what he's saying. The term meet uh, comes from the word dai. It means necessity brought on by circumstances. It's the same word used in John 4, 4, when Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. Necessity brought on by circumstances. And this verb is imperative one. So what the father is actually saying is, son, you and I have to celebrate. He's saying, listen, it's not your younger brother's party in the first place. It's my party. Because my son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. It's my rejoicing. Oh, if we could grasp that, that we ought to rejoice in the things that the father rejoices in. The party was not for the prodigal son. It was for the loving father. Because the prodigal son, like you and I, did not deserve that party. We can all agree to that. Nor do we deserve the grace the father gives us. But he loves us. And all heaven rejoices when one comes to him. James Boyce said, we are never so like God as when we rejoice at the salvation of sinners. And we are never so much like Satan as when we despise those who are converted and think ourselves superior to them. That's the point of the parables in Luke 15. There's three parables in Luke 15 about lost things. You have the lost sheep, the lost silver, and the lost son. And some have seen the Trinity in these parables here. Jesus being the shepherd seeking the lost sheep, the father being pictured as the father in this story, and the woman who lights the lamp and searches the house for the lost coin, uh, pictures the Holy Spirit that illuminates our heart and prepares our heart for salvation. In all three parables, God is the one that's celebrating. How can we then not be grateful? How can we not then be thankful? What a story. I mean, what applications we can have for us here because we have so much to be grateful for, and yet how many times do we find ourselves complaining with what we do not have? So how does the story end? I like reading novels. I, I read a lot of leadership books and Christian books, but there, I read some novels too. And uh, occasionally, you'll find a novel that doesn't end. And you talk about frustration. It's just like it just stops, but there's no... Like things weren't resolved. The, the, the character, the main... The, the whole push of the story just wasn't resolved. It just ends. And that's a frustrating thing. And that's 
kind of what happens to this story. It just ends. I mean, what happened after this? Does the older brother stomp off to the fields and continue to nurse his bitterness? Or does he let dad put his arm around him and, and walk into the house and celebrate together with the brother? I don't know. I think Jesus left it open-ended on purpose. Because the same thing is available to you. What are you going to do? Are you going to be thankful? Or are you going to focus on what you don't have? Are you going to be grateful and celebrate with the things that God celebrates over and be thankful for all the blessings that you have and celebrate with other people when they get things right in their life? Or will you nurse bitterness? The story is open-ended because as far as we're concerned, when it comes to application, it's our job to determine what happens next. And I'm asking you today, will you be grateful? Will you be grateful for what you have? Will you not focus on the things you don't have and rather focus on the things that you do have? Why don't you come today and fill the empty chair at Thanksgiving and just be grateful and thankful for the things that God has blessed you with? I, that's, to best of my ability, that's what I want to do this season and always. Just be grateful. Let's every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to have a time of invitation just to offer you an opportunity to respond. Come forward if God has spoken to your heart. I think every single one of us can agree we can all be more grateful. We can all complain less and thank God more. If that's you today, would you respond? Would you stand along with me with your eyes closed, heads bowed, and as she plays, if the Lord's spoken to your heart, would you just come forward at this time?